The opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction. Any action can be traction or distraction based on one word, intent. The number one reason we don't achieve our goal is we quit. Why do we quit? Because we don't feel like doing the thing we say we're going to do. So what do we do about all these external triggers in our life? We can hack back. We can take steps to make sure that these triggers serve us as opposed to us serving them. Making time for traction is understanding what your values are and then turning your values into time. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready to take charge of your existence and biohack your life? This show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends, I am so excited about today's episode. It is all about biohacking your productivity and attention span, how to be, quote, indistractable, how to handle emails, how to handle your workload, how to engage with your life. I really love episodes like this that diverge a little bit from the typical type of content that we have on this show. Nir Ayal was just so kind, so wonderful. I really, really enjoyed talking to him. So I can't wait to hear what you guys think. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash indistractable. I-N-D-I-S-T-R-A-C-T-A-B-L-E. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then find the announcement post on Instagram on Fridays. Also comment there to again enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric, or focused on a certain type of person, and I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it, so please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you are currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, They are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experienced the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? 
That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. 
You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, Clean Beauty and Safe Skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a Band of Beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon Prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Nir Ayal. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. So it manifested actually through a friend who I've also had on the show, Bill Tanser. He introduced me to this fabulous human being, Nir Ayal, who I have here today. He's the author of two books, Hooked, How to Build Habit-Forming Products and Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Your Life. And friends, so I am all about learning about our psychology and really optimizing our experience of the world and being the most productive and content and amazing person that we can be in our daily lives. And that can be pretty hard to do, or so it seems today, with all of our modern technology and the things that we are exposed to and, quote, distractions. And Nier's work really dives deep into how technology and products have affected us, The actually how it goes both ways, so how companies can make products that really, well, create habit-forming users, and then on the flip side, how users can have a healthy relationship with our environment and products and technology and stuff like that. So he's been all over the place. He's been in the New York Times, the Harvard Business Review, Time Magazine, Psychology Today. And I will say, not only are his books, they're easy to read, they're very approachable, but they are packed, like packed, packed, packed with so much information. I learned so many things that I had no idea about. And then on top of that, I learned why I do a lot of the things that I personally do. I'm sure we'll talk about this in the show, but there are a lot of habitual things that I do that I find make myself more productive and less susceptible to distraction. And Nier talks about a lot of these and it made me so happy because I was like, oh, that's why I do that. So in any case, I'm just so excited. There's so many ways that we could take this, but Nir, thank you so much for being here. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. So to start things off, uh, for listeners who are not familiar with your work, could you tell us a little bit about your personal story? So what you're doing today with the psychology of everything, have you always been interested in that route? Did it start more with the business side of things? What led you to what you're doing 
now? Well, it depends how far back you want to go, but may- maybe <laughs> maybe the, the inspiration for the work I do today really started when I was uh, a kid and I was clinically obese and I was clinically obese for a, a good chunk of my life. And I don't, I don't mean overweight, I mean clinically obese. Like my, I remember going to the doctor's office with my mom and the doctor saying, look, kid, you know, here, here's normal weight, here's overweight, and here's you, right? You're over here on the chart. You're in the obese category. And I, I think it all started from the struggle I had with my weight that I, I still struggle with today, even though today at 44 years old, I'm in the best shape of my life. I've, I've, I've never been this physically fit. And it's not because I have good genes. It's, it's, there's nothing, that, that's not the reason. It's because I finally learned to do what I say I'm going to do. And I, I think that this is really the skill of the century because these days we all basically know what to do. And if you don't know what to do, you Google it right? Like if you want to lose weight, if you want to have better relationships with your family, if you want to be more productive at work, the answers are out there. What we don't know how to do is how do we stop getting in our own way, right? That despite knowing what we do, despite promising to ourselves that we will finally eat right and exercise and be fully present with people and get the work done that we have to get done, despite knowing what to do, we don't do it. We lie to ourselves, And so that's really what I wanted to tackle because I think in this day and age, it's only becoming more difficult if you are not prepared, if you don't have this critical skill set, it's becoming more and more difficult to control your time and attention. And that truly determines what we make of our life is how we control our time and how we control our attention. I love that so much. And actually, that was something that you talked about in, in the books. I probably remember which one it came from, but it might, it kind of overlaps <laughs> between the two. Something that you talked about that had never occurred to me before was you're talking about the value of committing to things because basically, unless you commit, you won't know if what you're doing is a distraction or not. And like the role of values and what we do. And that had never occurred to me that, oh, you know, having values and committing to something, that's actually the difference in between is what I am literally doing right now a distraction or not. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that's a really good place to start, actually, just to interject here, to, to understand what the, that term even means. I think that was a, a real revelation for me was when I, I started, I wanted to understand distraction. And one of the first things I learned was that this is not a new problem, that, uh, you know, we like to blame our technologies, we like to blame the food industry, we like to blame all kinds of modern things for causing our distraction. But what I quickly found in that this topic has been a struggle for humans for at least the past 2,500 years, that's when Plato, the Greek philosopher, talked about akrasia in the Greek, the tendency to do things against our better interest. So if people were struggling with distraction, I mean, the, the, the guy was literally saying 2,500 years ago, gosh, things are so distracting these days. <laughs> so if Plato was talking about this 2,500 years before the internet, the root cause can't be modern technology, right? It has to be something deeper. And so when I looked at, you know, what does this word distraction even mean? One of the things I was surprised to find is that I didn't really understand what that term even means. And if you want to test yourself to see if you know what that term means, ask yourself, what is the opposite, right? What's the antonym of distraction? Most people will tell you the opposite of distraction is focus, right? We don't want to be distracted. We want to be focused, but that's not exactly right. That if you look at the origin of the word distraction, the opposite of distraction is not focus. The opposite of distraction is traction that both traction and distraction come from the same Latin root, trahare, which means to pull. And you'll notice that both words end in the same six letters, A-C-T-I-O-N, that spells action. Reminding us that distraction is not something that happens to us, but rather it is an action that we take. So traction, by definition, is any action that pulls you 
towards what you said you were going to do. Things that you do with intent, things that move you closer to your values that help you become the kind of person you want to become. The opposite of traction, distraction, is any action that pulls you away from what you plan to do, anything that pulls you away from your values, further away from becoming the kind of person you want to become. So this is super important. This isn't just semantics. This is really important because I would argue that any action can be traction or distraction based on one word, and that one word is intent. That you know, many times when we talk about this discussion of distraction, people tend to moralize and medicalize right? How you spend your time, you know, Facebook or Instagram or YouTube, that's a waste of time. But me watching football, that's okay, right? We tend to moralize or medicalize. Oh, they're addicting us, right? Uh, they're, they're, you know, the, these tech products are hijacking our brains and we, we all have ADHD. And that's just not true. Some people have addiction. Some people have ADHD. It's about 3% of the population. So 97% chance that is not our problem. So what we need to realize is that none of these things that we use to spend our time are inherently bad, right? It's about whether we do them with intent or not. So if you want to spend time on Facebook, great, or, or email or football or whatever you want to do, do those things, but do them on your schedule and according to your values. Those are acts of traction. Conversely, what I found in my research is that the most common causes of distraction or the most common outlets for distraction are not the things people blame, we tend to blame, you know, the, the, the media, technology, and things like that. Turns out the way we tend to get distracted tends to be in ways that we don't even realize we're getting distracted. Let me give you a quick example. For years, I would sit down at my desk at work, and I would say, okay, now I'm going to get started on this task, this thing I've been procrastinating on. I've got it at the top of my to-do list. Here I go. I'm going to get started. I'm going to get to work. But first, let me check some email right? That, that's a work-related task. I'm being productive, right? Aren't I? I'm doing a work, worky type thing. And what I didn't realize is that that is the most pernicious form of distraction because you don't even realize you're getting distracted. When we do this kind of thing, distraction tricks us into prioritizing the urgent and the easy work at the expense of the hard and important work we have to do to move our lives and careers forward. So just because it's a work-related task doesn't mean it's not a distraction. If it's not done with intent, if it's not pre-planned, if it's not something you are doing with forethought, it is by definition a distraction. So for example, taking the example of like a stereotypical person who has, quote, ADHD, you were talking about how the opposite of distraction is not focus. Like a, a person with ADHD, presumably, I haven't had ADHD, but my understanding is like you just flip back and forth focusing intensely on different things, right? I guess what I'm saying there is they are actually really focused on a lot of things. It's just the common goal, I guess, isn't being achieved. So that's why they don't have the traction because the focus is not moving towards one common thing. Is that what's going on? Well, so so ADHD affects around 3% of the population. And my book, frankly, isn't written for people with ADHD. It's written for people who are struggling with non-pathological conditions. So everyone else, <laughs> the 97% of us who you know, think we might have something wrong with us, but it turns out if you don't have a diagnosis, there's probably nothing wrong with you. <laughs> that It's just the fact that we live in a world with so many interesting things, and thank God we do live in this world of abundance where for the first time in human history, you can be entertained with the touch of a button, you can connect with loved ones, uh, you can you know, learn anything you wanna learn uh, right in the palm of your hand. But the price of all that progress, the, the cost of living in this amazing age of, of abundance is that we have to learn this new skill, this new skill of becoming indistractable. You touched on this a few times, but I got really excited with parts of the book talking about the role of planning and something that you call time boxing. So I am 
the biggest planner of all planners. So I have a, I have an actual physical calendar. I plan out the entirety of my day very extensively, like every second. A lot of it is in blocks, like you talk about in your book. It's funny because I feel extremely free having this approach because then I know that everything is accounted for, everything is planned out, and I can exist within that. I can know that I will be able to get to what I want to get to. I don't feel like I'm, again, distracted. I don't feel like I have too many choices that I have to make. But for people who don't like planning, when I engage with them, they think that it sounds you know, controlling or like it's locking them in. So how do you feel about scheduling and planning? And, and what is time box? I always say time blocking, time boxing, time boxing. Yeah, same same thing. It's, a, it's I didn't invent this concept. It's been around for a while. So yeah, time blocking, time boxing. And, and I'm not surprised that you're using it. What we find is that very, very few people do. It's only about 5% of the population. And that 5% of the population that does this are high performers, tends to be. That the people who, and, and this is what's so weird about this, is that people who don't use this technique, who resist this technique of, of time boxing, they resist it because they think, oh, I don't want to be boxed in. I don't want to be told what to do. I need freedom. I need to clear my day in order to get focused work done. And of course, it's exactly the opposite. When we have wide open space in our day, that's when we tend to be least productive, right? Because what most people do, if they're into time management at all, the first technique they learn is keeping a to-do list, right? And I'm not anti-to-do lists, but if you use them incorrectly, they actively harm your personal productivity. Why? Because to-do lists, what people do when they have a to-do list, there's a few problems with it. Number one, there's no constraint. So you can always add more to a to-do list. And this is why people come home from work after a hard day. They look at their to-do list and there's still a million things on it and they feel like crap. Why? Because a to-do list is a promise you're making with yourself. You're saying, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this. And what happens if day after day, week after week, month after month, year after year, you don't finish those things on your to-do list, which I've never met a to-do list devotee who finishes everything on their to-do list every day. So what you're doing is reinforcing the fact that you are not living to your personal obligations day in and day out, loser. And this begins to have a negative toll on your perception of yourself, of your capabilities. And this is where you hear people saying very harmful, self-defeating beliefs around, I'm no good at time management. Well, it's not that you're no good at time management, it's that you're using a technique that's no good. As opposed to people who do what you do, and now now I do, I used to be a to-do list devotee, but now what I do today is that I use in conjunction with the to-do list, I also time box my day. Meaning, I know when I will do what I say I'm going to do. And the goal is not to finish the task. Okay, this is super important. It's not about finishing anything. But then how am I gonna get stuff done? Turns out, studies find, that people who simply focus on working without distraction for as long as they say they will. So if you say, I'm going to check email for 30 minutes, I'm going to write that blog post for an hour, I'm going to make my sales calls for 45 minutes, whatever the case might be, the people who do those things without distraction, irregardless of whether they finish the task, actually get more done than the to-do list people. Because the people who don't schedule their day and only work with the to-do list They do five minutes of this, then they get distracted. They do five minutes of that. They do five minutes of this. They're constantly doing what we call reactive work, reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to phone calls, and they don't get that focused work time to work without distraction, and it takes them substantially longer 
The other big problem with to-do lists is that there's no feedback mechanism. So we, we have what's called a planning fallacy that most people surveys find take three times longer to finish a task than they expect. And this happens because there's no feedback with a to-do list. When you say, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, I'm going to do this, you don't have any mechanism to tell you, well, how long did it actually take you to work on this task over time? Whereas when you use a time box calendar, it provides you feedback because you say, okay, look, I put in 30 minutes to do this task for five days of the week. How far did I get in terms of completing my goal at some point? Now let me adjust. Okay, I need 45 minutes. I need more, less time, et cetera. And you're learning over time how long things actually take you to complete. And this is why people who use this methodology that I describe in my book, Indistractable, really do get more done. And they're also way more satisfied with their life because the people who don't time box, they never enjoy what real leisure feels like. There are so few people out there who really understand what leisure should feel like. Why? Because for for folks who are constantly running around, running their life on a to-do list, they're never done. So they get home from work and all they want to do is watch a movie on Netflix or hang out with their kids. But what's happening in the back of their mind? They're thinking about, oh, I should really finish checking my email. I didn't finish that project yet. There's those hundred things on my to-do list I still haven't done. So they don't even actually get to be fully present and enjoy leisure time. As opposed to people who time box their day, when they sit down and play with their kids, it's on their calendar. That's what they have planned to do when they scroll social media or whatever they want to do for fun. It is planned for. And so there's no guilt. Anything else but checking social media or watching a movie or playing with your kids would then be a distraction. So the fact that they know in advance, this is what I want to do with my time by time boxing gives them the peace of mind <sighs> to finally relax without feeling guilty that they should be doing something else. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference. May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando, and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and Dry Farm Wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples, meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there.
You're speaking my language so much. Yeah, I feel like I sort of combine them. Like, so in my calendar, I have the way the calendar is set up, I have an ongoing to do list and left column. That's my ongoing list of like everything. And I recopy it over each week to the, the next week. But every day, I pull pieces from it and put it onto that day's quote to-do list, but it's within the the time that I do it. And then I only do certain things during certain times. So like every day and then every day during the middle of the day, I go and do cryotherapy. And that's where I like time box in my head the rest of the day, what I'm going to do during the different hours. So I just love all of this so much. And actually I didn't think I could do this because a lot of my life is doing social media. So Instagram, Facebook, I have some pretty big Facebook groups. So it's been hard to find a healthy balance with that and a healthy relationship with that. But at least with Facebook, the biggest thing that I've done that has had a a profound effect is this time box method. I used to check Facebook constantly throughout the day. Now I only go, I check at night. I have a very specific time when I check it and then I'm done and I don't open it again unless I have to. I, I thought I would fall behind, but I haven't. Yeah, yeah. And in fact, it gives you peace of mind knowing You've got time planned for it. This this is the problem, and this is what we should really get into because what, what I thought was the source of distraction turned out not at all to be the, the defining factor of why we tend to mostly get distracted. So there are two kinds of what we call triggers, right? We talked about earlier about traction and distraction. What leads us towards traction and distraction are triggers. There are two kinds of triggers. The first is what we tend to blame. It's the external triggers. These are all the pings, the dings, the rings, the things in our outside environment that lead us towards traction or distraction. Now, that turns out to be only 10% of the times that people get distracted. Only 10% of the time that people get distracted is it because of an external trigger. So what's the other 90%? The other 90% of the time we get distracted, it's not because of what's happening outside of us, but rather about what's happening inside of us. These are called internal triggers. What are internal triggers? Internal triggers are uncomfortable sensations we seek to escape. Loneliness, boredom, fatigue, uncertainty, stress, anxiety, fearfulness. These feelings that we seek to escape. And this turns out to be by far the leading cause of distraction. Distraction is not a moral failing. It's nothing, there's nothing wrong with you, right? We're not broken somehow. It's simply that we haven't learned to deal with this discomfort in a healthy way that leads us towards traction, rather we try and escape it with distraction. So this is, this is a super important lesson. One of the most important learnings that I've had writing this, this book and doing this research is that time management is pain management. Let me say that again. Time management is pain management. By the way, you can also add weight management is pain management. Money management is pain management because all human behavior, all human behavior, is driven by the desire to escape discomfort. We used to believe in what Freud called the pleasure principle. Jeremy Bentham said something similar around that all human behavior is driven by the desire to pursue pleasure and avoid pain. That is not true. Neurologically speaking, everything you do, everything you do is about the desire to escape discomfort. This is called the homeostatic response. So if you feel cold, the body says, hey, you should put on a coat. If you feel hungry, the body says, oh, that doesn't feel good, you should eat. So all of these Physical states, our our physical behaviors, are driven by the desire to escape discomfort. That makes perfect common sense. What we don't think about is that the psychology around why we do various behaviors in our life is also driven by how we feel emotionally. So when you are lonely, check social media. When you're uncertain, Google. 
when you're bored. Oh, lots of solutions for boredom, right? Check sports scores, check, check stock prices, check the news, right? Let's worry about somebody's problem 5,000 miles away so we don't have to worry about what's happening in our own heads. This is the driver of all our behavior. And so that's why it's so important to understand that the first step to becoming indistractable, before all the life hacks and the tips and the tricks, none of that stuff works unless you first start with mastering these internal triggers or they will become your master. So this idea that we're trying to avoid discomfort, what role does our seeming contentment with reality play? I guess, okay, because you talk about how on the one hand, if we weren't content, we wouldn't advance as a civilization. On the other hand, I feel like a reason that I am often indistractable, and I'm not saying I'm indistractable. You are. You are. You can call yourself indistractable. So this is this is actually really important. Sorry to jump in. It's a really important distinction. Being indistractable, I, I made up the word, by the way, so I can define it any way I want. Really, really quick. So I read the book and I, I was exposed to the word so much. I was just assuming that it was a word. And I, and I was like taking all my notes and it kept trying to like autocorrect it. I was like, wait, is this really not a word? But I was like so used to hearing it from, <laughs> from your book. Yeah, it wasn't in the dictionary, right? <laughs> yeah. So, so being indistractable doesn't mean you never get distracted. It doesn't mean you never get it. I still get distracted from time to time. Being indistractable means you strive to do what you say you're going to do. You're as honest with yourself as you are with others. So an indistractable person learns why they got distracted and they do something about it as opposed to a distractible person keeps getting distracted by the same things again and again and again, and they don't do anything about it. So Puello Coelho, he had a wonderful quote. He said, a mistake repeated more than once is a decision. A mistake repeated more than once is a decision. Distractible people decide to be distractible because they keep getting distracted by the same stupid thing, right? We know Facebook is distracting. Okay. We know email can be distracting. Okay. We know that you know you can fall off your diet. Okay. But what are you going to do about it? So an indistractable person takes steps today to prevent getting distracted tomorrow. If you do that, if you strive to do what you say you're going to do, if you're the kind of person who says, okay, I got distracted once, fine, it's allowed, what am I going to do to prevent it from happening again and again and again? That's what being indistractable is all about. So you can call yourself indistractable. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. So now I have a thought based on what you just said, but the other thing I was saying before that was that in a way, I feel like I'm very content with my reality and that's the reason that I feel indistractable because I don't feel like I'm trying to escape anything. I do feel very content but I am constantly moving towards things. So maybe that word content is being used differently. I just had this major epiphany where maybe the reason I I feel indistractable is because I'm so content with my reality, like my life's journey, that I don't feel the need to look other places. I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I I think that's that's absolutely right. So the point I was making in, in the book around why being discontent is actually a good thing and why I I push back against the self-help narrative that we're supposed to be happy all the time, that the goal is, you know, perpetual bliss. That that doesn't make any sense. Evolutionarily and biologically, that is not how the species is created. Because think about it, if you were always happy, if you were always satisfied, why would you work, right? Why would you improve your lot in life? Why would you make the world a better place if you are completely blissed out and satisfied all the time? I think we should lean into the fact that our species does so well, you know, we are the most successful species on the face of the earth because we have this perpetual disquietude that pushes us forward. The question is, what do we do with that discomfort? High performers leverage it. They use the fact that they want more, that they want to do better, that they want to improve the world. They use that to drive themselves 
to traction. What low performers do when they feel the very same feelings, what do they do? They escape. They drink. They scroll. They watch the news. They do things that help them feel better in the moment, but don't actually make things better in reality. That's the difference. So you talk about a lot of different tactics that you can use, things like price packs and identity packs. And what are some of your favorite ways that we can actually implement, you know, tactics to not be distracted? Yeah, absolutely. So it comes from understanding this model. The strategies are much more important than than the tactics. Tactics are what you do, but strategy is why you do it. So the, the most important thing is to understand these four parts of the indistractable model, and then you can adapt for yourself in your own life what works for, best for you. So if you think about it this way, so you've got traction, you've got distraction, you can think of that as like a horizontal number line, right? To the right is traction, to the left is distraction. Then you can think of two arrows point to the middle of this horizontal line pointing vertically from top and bottom. You've got external triggers and internal triggers. And, and I'll, I'll give you a link so you can add it to the show notes if people want to see this visualization. It's very helpful to, to see it. But now we just want to use these four strategies in concert. So the first step is to master internal triggers, which we talked about earlier. That's the most important first step because you will always find a way around doing what you say you're going to do if you can't master these, these feelings, right? The number one reason we don't achieve our goal, it's very simple, is we quit. That is the number one reason people don't achieve their goals. They quit. Why do we quit? We quit because we don't feel like doing the thing we say we're going to do, right? We don't feel like exercising. We don't feel like eating right. We don't feel like doing that project. It's a feeling. So fundamentally, we have to get that right. We have to learn how to master those internal triggers. That's step one. Step two is making time for traction. So this is what we talked about with time boxing. It's about understanding what your values are and then turning your values into time because You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. Let me say that again. You can't call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. So if you can't look at your calendar and say, huh, I wanted to do this, but I didn't, you have no right to say you got distracted. If you don't plan your day, everything is a distraction. So I teach you how to do that, how to synchronize your schedule. Many people say, yeah, that sounds great, but my boss wants this and my kids want that. No problem. We do what we call a schedule sync so that we can make sure that when we have stakeholders in our life that demand our time and attention, we know what to do about that so that we don't go off track. So there's there's strategies and remedies for every situation. So that's the second step, making time for traction. The third step is to hack back the external triggers. So even though they only make up about 10% of our distractions, when it comes to our phone, our computer, that's easy stuff, that's kindergarten. What's a little bit more complex, but also I would say even more important, is the kind of distraction that that we don't really realize is taking us off course. Things like stupid meetings (laughs) that we didn't need to be a part of. Emails that we think are important that really aren't. You know, how do we deal with, or what about our kids? You know, for many of us who are working from home, kids, we love them to death, but they can be a huge distraction. So what do we do about all these external triggers in our life? we can hack back. We can take steps to make sure that these triggers serve us as opposed to us serving them. And so I show you systematically how to go through each and every one of those. And then finally, the last strategy for becoming indistractable, and this is something that must come last, you have to do these in order, is to prevent distraction with pacts. Pacts are these what we call pre-commitment devices. It's when we decide in advance what we will do when a distraction rears its ugly head so that it becomes a firewall, it becomes a last line of defense 
against distraction. And as you mentioned, we have price packs, we have identity packs, we have effort packs, and we can talk more about how to use those. But essentially what they are uh, are these these fail-safes, these, these, these barriers between us and something we don't want to do that if everything else fails, this keeps us on track. And so just to reemphasize, you have to do that step last because if you don't do the other three steps first, then it can go off the rails. So that's it. Those four steps in concert. Now, you don't have to do everything all at once, right? What we find is the best strategy is to just do one thing in each of these four strategies. Everybody can do one small thing. It's super easy to get started. And what you'll find is that over time, you start building your self-efficacy. You start building your sense of agency that, wait a minute, I actually can do this, right? I'm not a victim to distraction. I can decide how I control my attention, how I control my life. And then you start adopting more and more strategies to, to optimize how you spend your time. Hi, friends. So I'm sort of haunted by clothes. If you follow me on Instagram, you probably know that I love wearing all the new clothes all the time. And I know that that is not really sustainable and not good for the planet. That's why I am thrilled that there is now a way to get all of the clothes with none of the waste. And I'm going to tell you how you can get unlimited clothes with no waste for a month for free. That's right, I now have a website for both myself and you guys where you can get free unlimited clothes with free shipping, free exchanges, nonstop from all of the hottest brands, and it is so incredibly easy. It's called MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. We have so many incredible brands, including my favorites like BCBG, Calvin Klein, and so many more. Think like a hundred brands. There are so many options. And the way it works is when you get a subscription, you search through the clothes, pick what you want. They send it to you with fast, easy shipping. You wear it as long as you want. And then when you're ready for more clothes, you just drop it off in their prepackaged envelope and get your next round. It is so incredibly cool. They have multiple plans. The starter plan gives you two pieces at a time. Friends, I actually have a little secret hacked. Don't tell them that I told you this. When you get your two pieces, you can actually immediately go into your account, click return, and they'll go ahead and send you the next two pieces. So technically you can have four pieces at a time. You also have a cool virtual closet that you can keep stocked with everything you eventually want to order so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I'm obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website. So I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. 
and definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's MelanieAvalon'sCloset.com. I'm just going to say for listeners, if you are loving this, definitely just get indistractable because I'm just thinking about how many things there are and how many treasures there are when they um, read the book. I wanted to comment really quickly on the internal triggers. So something that I read in your book that, you know how sometimes you read something in a book and you you actually really start implementing it daily and it's just so invaluable. So that was you pointing out about the way to, I don't want to say tackle, but the way to work with internal triggers is basically identifying the urge that comes right before the trigger. And the reason I wanted to point this out is because it might sound like the goal here is to, you know, change your feelings or get rid of your feelings or, you know, whatever that may be. But as Nir talks about, like, it's not that it's, it's just identifying that internal feeling that comes before the thing that is the distraction. And it's crazy because I started doing it for something that I wanted to specifically tackle, something I was doing that I didn't want to be doing. I realized, oh, every time before there is this internal feeling that I have. And it's, I mean, it's mind blowing to actually experience that in real time. So thank you. Yeah. Well, can I ask what what that was? I'm just curious what the, maybe it's helpful to to hear it in real time. It was... (laughs) not wanting to text somebody that I didn't want to be texting. You didn't feel like it, but you you knew you had to or you knew you... So like this urge to check this person's social media or send them a text message or somebody I was trying to cut out of my life rather than keep in my life. And I realized right before every time there was this feeling of like a fear or a loneliness. It wasn't so much about that other person. Mm, oh, I see. So that so texting them was the distraction away from what you really wanted to do. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Got, oh, that's a good one. So I see. So what, what did you discover was the internal trigger that was driving the distraction? I don't know if it was clear enough, my actual identification of it, but the meandering thing that I came to was that by feeling like I wasn't engaging with this person and they weren't engaging with me, then they were no longer interested, that I didn't have self-worth, that I wasn't being seen, that I wasn't like, so I, I think it had to do with my own insecurities surrounding probably social rewards that you talk about seeking like social acceptance. I mean, this, this is, this is golden, right? Because what, what you're doing is you're processing on, on your side of the net, so to speak, right? That you, you can't change that person. What you can change is how you respond to this, the, these feelings. So what, what we tend to find is that when it comes to distraction, people fall into three different categories. We've got what we call the blamers. The blamers blame distraction on other things outside of them, right? It's this person, the internet, it's uh, the news, it's all this stuff outside of them. But that's, of course, a futile strategy because you can't change that stuff right? There was no mythical age before distraction. There will always be somebody out there that, that annoys you, that does not doing what you want them to do in your life. So, you know, blaming things outside yourself doesn't work. The other extreme is what we call the shamers, right? We've got the blamers and we've got the shamers. The shamers, they shame themselves. They think that there's something wrong with them. They're somehow broken. They're somehow deficient. And they, that, that's not a great strategy either because shame is a very uncomfortable internal trigger. So the more we feel shame, the more we feel that we are somehow deficient and wrong and broken, what do we do? We feel bad. And what do you do when you feel bad? You become more likely to search for more distraction to take your mind off of feeling bad. So being a blamer doesn't work. Being a shamer doesn't work. The only strategy of the three that works is becoming a claimer. A claimer 
claims responsibility not for how they feel. Okay, this is a really important point, and you touched on it earlier. The feeling part is not the problem. Okay, you do not control your feelings. This is a message everyone needs to hear. You do not control your feelings. It's ridiculous. It's like an urge, right? So if you have the urge to sneeze, do you control that urge to sneeze? No, it's involuntary. Once you felt the urge to sneeze, there's nothing you can do about the urge to sneeze. What do you do when you feel the urge to sneeze? The responsible thing to do is to grab a, a tissue and cover your face so you don't get other people sick. So we, uh, unlike a blamer or a shamer, a claimer claims responsibility based on what they do in response, hence the term responsibility, to that internal trigger. So it's not about the feeling, it's about what you do in response to that feeling. So what you did in terms of understanding, wait a minute, that urge I have to get in touch with this person, what is the real, what, what, what is that source of that discomfort? What is that internal trigger, right? Is it insecurity? Is it my sense of self-worth? It's, it's things that you can control that you are feeling and then you can control how you will respond to that internal trigger in the healthiest way possible. Is it, is it something that you, that you will respond to in a way that leads you towards traction or is it a way that leads you away from your values, away from your goals, and something you're doing to relieve that discomfort with distraction? So making those changes, learning this, this new paradigm or this new strategy for you know making these changes in your life, one of the things you talk about is just how hard it is to actually change behavioral patterns that are ingrained in us. And you talk about this I have told so many people this fun fact. You talk about the the keyboard setup and how like the keyboard are the Q U E R T Y or whatever it's called, how it makes like no sense. Like it's not it's not the most efficient way a keyboard should be set up, but despite attempts to change and have new keyboards, we're just going to keep using this keyboard because that's what we're so used to. So actually making these changes, how possible is behavior change? And is it harder to make, so like the keyboard is an external thing. So actually using something externally, are those types of behaviors harder or easier than changing internal behaviors we have? Kind of like how we engage with what we just talked about with urges that we experience. Yeah. So it, it's a, it's a great question. I don't know if I have a, a quantifiable answer, but you know, the QWERTY keyboard is a wonderful example, just to, just to keep everybody kind of get everybody up to speed. The idea behind the QWERTY keyboard, you know, if you look at your first line below the numbers, you'll see that the first line says Q-W-E-R-T-Y. So that's why it's called a QWERTY keyboard. And that keyboard configuration, like, you know, why is it not just A, B, C, D, E, F, G? Like, why, why do the letters not go in order? And the reason that it is that way is because when keyboards were first invented on typewriters, keystrokes used to be like hammers, kind of like hammers on a piano. If you've ever seen how a, a piano works on the inside, and so what they found was that when, if you set up what's called a Dvorak keyboard, where it's A, B, C, D, E, F, G, where it's in alphabetical order along the keyboard, it actually, people typed too fast for the machinery to not get jammed. So if people would type so fast that the, that the, these hammers would get jammed up and they couldn't type. So the QWERTY keyboard that we use today was made to make us slower typers. It is intentionally designed to keep us slow. Wait, quick question. Is that just in the learning phase or after you've learned? In the typing phase. So it's, it's, you can actually, if you learn how to, if you habituate to a Dvorak keyboard, you will type much faster than a QWERTY keyboard because of the spacing of the, the, the letters are placed in such a position so that you have to reach for some of the most commonly used letters. 
you know, there are much more efficient ways to design a keyboard than the QWERTY keyboards that we all use today. So why is it that way? Why do we keep using it, even though absolutely the case that we would type faster with a different keyboard configuration? Well, it's because it became the industry standard, right? Once people habituated to this way, the market potential of switching over is very small now because we all know QWERTY. It's memorized. It's a habit. We, we type with little or no conscious thought, the definition of a habit. So even if something is better, we don't switch. And so it's kind of a good metaphor for understanding in life why we do things the way we do. Do we do them because it's the best way to do them or because do we do them because it's the conventional way to do them? So I'm not advocating for people to switch keyboards. I use a QWERTY keyboard. It's much easier now that I know how to use it. But it does make me kind of question conventional wisdom, right? I know you do this as well. I, I know with, with your work, you know, everything you do is also about, is this the best way or is this just conventional? And so I think when, when it comes to this principle of being skeptical, not cynical, there's a big difference between being skeptical and cynical. I think skepti being skeptical is a very healthy attribute. We need to question, you know, is this the best way to do things or is this just the conventional way to do things as opposed to cynical thinking, oh, everybody's trying to get me and, you know, I I'm a victim. That's, that's not a healthy mindset either. But constantly questioning whether the things that I do, am I really doing them because they benefit me? Are they serving me or am I serving them? Hi friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. I did a lot of research on infrared saunas before deciding on them. Their saunas are so high quality. They're low EMF. And what I really love is they have a solo unit. That's what I have. And it's really great if you live in a small apartment, might be moving. It's just really an amazing investment and they have incredible deals and offers on it right now. You can actually get up to $200 off with the code Melanie Avalon, or if you're talking to a rep, just tell them that I sent you. And like I said, that will be up to $200 off and that will also get you $99 shipping. Normally the shipping is like $600. So that's a really, really big deal. And if you do purchase a sauna, forward your proof of purchase to podcast at melanieavalon.com. And I will also send you a signed copy of my book, What, When, Why. If you'd like to learn more about the science of sauna, Two resources. I interviewed the founder of Sunlighten, Connie Zach. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. And then I also recently did an epic blog post all about the science of sauna. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right, now back to the show. Gotcha. Okay. You're talking about how we can um, optimize our engagement with things that we feel like we have to be doing, but we don't actually have to be doing as much. So the emails and, and stuff like that. So the thing I struggle with, and you, you talk about this in the book, and I, I feel like I, I should do this, but I feel like I have to answer everybody because if I don't, then I'm ignoring them or I'm sliding them. So I really struggle to have a healthy relationship. I don't know if it's because of my level of empathy, but I, if I don't answer an email, I feel bad. Like I feel like a bad person because you were talking about the tactic, I guess, of delaying answering emails. So the thing that I found most comfortable for me was I can delay most of my emails to the end of my workday because half the time they actually get resolved by the end of the workday and then that's less time. But then I still feel like I have to answer everything. So one of my personal habits is don't leave any email unanswered before the next day. So even if I don't answer it, I email them to say that I will answer tomorrow. What do you propose for people to have a healthy relationship with emails, especially since I think you had some statistic about the amount of time that we spend on emails every day and it's 
some shocking amount. It is mind boggling. It's true. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, if you just do some simple math of the average knowledge worker gets 100 emails per day times two minutes per email, that only leaves about an hour and a half for everything that's not emails. And, you know, I budget in like an hour and a half of meetings per day. Really, the, 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 the average knowledge worker's workday leaves very little time for anything but meetings and emails. And that's, that's a big problem because we know that the really important work gets done without distraction. So there's two kinds of work. There's reactive work, which we all have to do in some degree, right? Reacting to emails, reacting to notifications, reacting to phone calls. We have to do that. But there's also another kind of work, which turns out to be more important, which is what's called reflective work. Reflective work is the strategizing, the planning, the thinking has to be done without distraction. You can't do reflective work in five-minute sprints the way you can do reactive work. So what we find is that high performers will make time in their day, not their whole day, but some time in their day without fail for reflective work. The high performers make that time and they keep it sacred. They protect it, whether it's getting up early, whether it's budgeting time in their day and saying, look, my door's closed. I have to think. I have to work here without distraction. They make time in their day for reflective work to be indistractable. So that's absolutely critical, as opposed to what most low performers do is that they run around their day, you know, they're, they're super busy all day long. Whenever I hear somebody says, oh, I'm so busy, I'm so busy. That's what they're talking about is they're doing reflective work. The problem is, I'm sorry, they're doing reactive work. The problem is they're running around real fast in the wrong direction because they've had no time to sit down and actually think about, wait, what, what am I doing here? What, is this really the direction I want to go in? So you have to make at least some part in your day for that reflective work time. Now, when it comes to email, email is kind of the, the bane of the mo- modern knowledge worker's existence these days because it's such a convenient place to go when you don't know what else to do, <laughs> right? So when I'm not really sure what the most important project is, so uncertainty. When I have a big project I don't feel like doing because it's hard, so boredom or fatigue, right? So these internal triggers drive this unhealthy use of email as a distraction. And so the first place to start, and by the way, we, we are cut from the same cloth here, right? <laughs> that I, 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 I have to constantly monitor this myself. Uh, I've gotten a lot better about it, but I also very, you know, very much feel this pain around the guilt of not replying to people on time. All kinds of internal triggers are associated with email. The first step is to realize it's a feeling. It's a feeling. It's not necessarily reality. Now, there are some emails that are, oh my gosh, super urgent. You have to write me right away. But that's maybe 1% or less of emails. Because look, if your house is on fire, it's not, they're not going to email you. They're going to call you. They're going to text you. They're going to find a way to get through to you. It's not going to be an actual emergency. So the first thing we need to realize, and I, I hear this from people all the time, well, I can't just disconnect. I can't work without distraction. What if somebody needs me? Well, the reality is they're not going to need you through email. They're going to find you another way. That, that really, it's an excuse. It's a feeling that we have that we might be needed that comforts us in a way knowing that, oh, somebody needs me. I'm important. And if I don't feel like doing the big project, I can always check email and feel like, oh, I'm being productive. But again, that's the most dangerous form of distraction, the kind that tricks you into prioritizing the wrong type of stuff like email. So instead, what we want to do is, is a few things. One, we have to time box the the time we spend on email. That far too many of us, when we can't think of something else to do, we check email for five minutes here and there. And of course, that's a a huge productivity sink because it distracts us from what we really want to do and it doesn't allow us to do that kind of focused work that really helps us be at our best. So by planning time for it in our schedule, 
And, and, and you have to decide what that is for you. So if you want to work for 30 minutes and check email for 30 minutes, if that's the kind of cadence for your type of job, you need a lot of reactive work, fine. I'm not going to tell you how to spend your time, but, but do it with intent. Do it by, with forethought on your schedule. So for me, I have time, I, I budget an hour and a half every day for email. That's about how much time I've learned, you know, by using time boxing for a few years now that I know I need on a daily basis. Now, the, the key is that you book that time, but then also you have a few rules about how you respond to email. And, and, and here's how it works. You want to set a rule that you only touch email two times. Each email only gets touched two times because what studies find is that the way we waste time on email, it's not the checking, it's not the replying, it's the rechecking. That's where we waste time on email. And you know what this looks like, right? You open the email, you read it, you put it away, you open the next email, you read it, you put it away. 25 minutes later, wait, what does that email say again? Let me check it. When does it need it? You know, that's the problem. So what you want to do is to say you only touch each email two times. The first time you label it based on when it needs a reply. Not what the subject is, but when it needs a reply. And it falls into two categories, actually three categories. The first category is junk. If it never needs a reply, archive it. You don't need to see it again. The other two categories are things that need a reply today, okay? Emails that actually do really need a reply today. You label those as today. And then emails that need a reply sometime this week, okay? 20% of your emails, this is on average for the average knowledge worker, 20% of your emails need a reply today. 80% of your emails can be replied to sometime this week. Now, this is what's so magical about this process. If you give those emails that need a reply sometime this week, just some time to marinate, right? Let them just sit there for a little bit. What you will find is that on average, 50% of that 80% of emails will no longer need a reply. Yeah, resolve themselves. <laughs> like They resolve themselves, exactly. Because what people do is they play what, what I call email ping pong right? You get in a message, you reply, you get a message, you reply, you get a message, you reply. And what you're doing is essentially guaranteeing that you will get too many emails. Because if you want to get fewer emails, you have to send fewer emails in a fixed period of time. So when you let those emails that don't need a reply immediately marinate, as opposed to replying, 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 you will save yourself a ton of time. So when you so step number one, realize it's just a feeling, right? People aren't going to die if you don't reply to them right away. They'll be just fine. <laughs> They've got other things in their life as well. Only reply to those emails that need a reply today based on a time box schedule. Then make extra time. So for me, I call it message Mondays. So on message Mondays, I have three hours on Mondays when I reply to those emails that need to reply sometime this week. Okay. And again, about 50% of those that I would have otherwise replied to, I don't have to reply to because, you know, it gets crushed under the weight of some other priority or people figuring out their own issues. So that that's a wonderful strategy to reduce the amount of time you spend on email. Well, just to comment on all of that, two of the most healing, healthy things I think for me with everything is I don't watch the news anymore. And it's for the reason that kind of like you said, that if they need you enough, they'll find you. I figure if something bad enough happens, it will find its way to me somehow without me watching the news constantly. Second, this is something that you talk about in the book, but I've already turned off all notifications that I can for everything. So then I have to consciously go in and choose to engage with the thing rather than it just popping up in my life. You can put your phone on do not disturb, but then it tells you that it's in do not disturb mode. And I'm like, why? 
<laughs> the point is to have no notifications. I want to be really respectful of your time. One little last thing maybe you could touch on, and this made me so happy, was you have a very nuanced perspective of multitasking. I always prided myself on, quote, multitasking, but then they always say, oh, you can't actually multitask. It's impossible. But you talk about multi-channel multitasking. I was wondering if you could just briefly tell listeners a little bit about that because I just thought that was, it's what I definitely naturally do. Yeah, totally. So I, I mean, the book is full as you can probably, you know, if you're listening, you can tell by now. So many treasures. Oh, thank you. I was going to say it's full of me turning over apple carts. It's a lot of myth busting. <laughs> and, and But I appreciate the, the kind words of it. So this is definitely a myth that, that needs to be busted, that we can't multitask. That is not true. I mean, common sense tells you it's not true, right? You can uh, drive in your car while you're talking to a friend. You can take a walk and listen to a podcast. You can, you can absolutely multitask. What you can't do is you can't unichannel multitask, meaning you can't take an input from two sources of information at the same time on the same channel. So it's just like a channel on your televisions. You can't watch two channels of TV at the same time. You can't listen to two podcasts, one in each ear, and figure out what both are saying. You can't do two math problems at the same time. But you absolutely can do what's called multi-channel multitasking. So if you utilize multiple channels at the same time, you can absolutely multitask. So what I recommend if you want to get more out of your day is to find ways to use different sensory channels at the same time. So I'll give you a, a quick example. So a few years ago, I decided to never read the news or, or any articles, that is, on my computer. Why? Because the media is designed, right? I'm not just talking about social media. I'm talking about traditional media, New York Times, CNN, whatever, BBC, all of them, they will not tell you you've had enough news, right? They will never, the New York Times will never say, hey, you've had enough, go live your life, <laughs> right? They want you to keep reading and reading and reading, consuming and consuming news. That's how they make money. They sell ads. So that, there's nothing wrong about that business model. I'm not saying it's unethical, but we need to be responsible as consumers of this information to make sure that we're using it in a way that serves us as opposed to us serving them. How do we do that? One of the things that I do is that I never read articles on the web. I always send articles to this great app called Pocket. I have no affiliation with them, but I just love the app. Pocket will take the text of the article. It'll scrub out all the ads, all the clickbait, all the links, and will allow you to listen to that article in this great text-to-speech feature they have. So what do I do? I use multi-channel multitasking to consume that content that otherwise would have wasted my time online. You know how it is. You read one article, then you read the next article, then you read the next article, and three hours later, you've wasted you know, your morning reading news, and you can't do anything about that stuff. So why did you spend that much time consuming it? You re then regret the lost time. Instead, what I do is when I see an interesting article, I say, great, I say that article, and I have a rule that I can only consume that content when I'm doing something for my body, meaning when I'm uh, taking a walk, when I'm in the gym, when I'm doing something healthy, and I listen to those articles read to me during that time, and that utilizes multi-channel multitasking. I can exercise as I'm listening to interesting content. So now it's really a win-win because not only am I not wasting the time going down this content vortex online, but I'm also incentivizing, this is what Katie Milkman calls temptation bundling, using the reward from one area of your life to incentivize action that you maybe don't have as much motivation to do in another area of your life. So the reward for exercising is listening to this interesting content. And so you can use multi-channel multitasking in all kinds of ways, right? Instead of taking a, a Zoom meeting 
why not take a walking Zoom meeting, right? <laughs> or have a conversation, you know, if you are so lucky to you know, be physically present with your colleagues, maybe take a walking meeting ar- around the block with them or, you know, all kinds of ways that we can use multi-channel multitasking to, to get more out of our time. Yeah, well, I think one of my favorite things is just organizing or cleaning while listening to, you know, podcasts or books that I'm reading. And yes, I just, I love it. So, well, this has been absolutely amazing. Listeners, we only barely scratched the surface. You've got to get Indistractable. Also, his other book, Hooked, is amazing. Near narrates the books. And so if you enjoyed listening to him, he is the one speaking. Did you narrate both of them or just one of them? Yeah, both of them. Both, yeah, yeah. They are so, so incredible. So definitely check them out. I will put links to everything that we talked about in the show notes. What links would you like to put out there, near for people to best follow your work? Are you working on any new books, by the way? Thanks, yeah. So I, I am in the process. It takes me about five years to write a book. So I, I kind of circle around a topic. So I haven't quite circled that topic. I have a few ideas that I'm narrowing down. But, you know, I always write books that that... I need. <laughs> That's always been what I write about. If there's already a book out there that addresses the problem, then I don't write it. But if I can't find a book that fixes the problem for me, that's when I write it. So with Indistractable, you know, I read all these books about, you know, stop using technology. Well, thanks, stupid. I can't. <laughs> like I'll get, I get, I won't have a job if I stop using technology. So I needed a, a, something that really worked for me. And that's why I decided to go deeper into, into this topic. So uh, yeah, there'll be some, there'll be a, more books in the future, but not quite sure what they will be. But to keep updated on what I'm working on, feel free to visit my blog. It's called nearandfar.com. Near is spelled like my first name, N-I-R. So that's N-I-R and far.com. Want more information about Indistractable? We actually have a complimentary 80-page workbook that we couldn't fit into the final edition of the book. It got too long, so we decided to make it available for free at indistractable.com, and that's spelled I-N, the word distract, A-B-L-E, so indistractable.com. Awesome. Well, we will put all of that in the show notes. And then I just wanted to tell you personally, I know we didn't talk as much about your book Hooked, but I recently launched my first product line and I have a lot of other product lines in the works. And your book was so valuable to me, not only to try to decide how to you know make the best product that I can for user experience and engagement, but you also address the morality of it because I've been haunted by this idea of, oh, am I, am I selling out like by making a product? And, and you talk about how the thing that determines if you're being manipulative or not is, is it something that you personally use? And is it something that would you know basically benefit the lives of others, which is everything that I try to do. So I was like, okay, <laughs> maybe we're okay. But yeah, but no, thank you so, so much. This has been so incredible. Maybe when you have your next book, you can come back on because this has been so amazing. Oh, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for the kind words. And yes, we'll definitely keep in touch and stay indistractable. Oh, thank you. You too. Thanks. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What When Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.